Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. To deny the different gifts that men and women bring to relationships, the workplace, and the church is to reject the calling that God gave us when he made us male and female instead of genderless. We don't need more maleness in the world, nor do we need a wan, anemic, genderless world. We need to recover how to be women and how to use our gifts to draw out and safeguard the potential that's in creation. Happy Mother's Day weekend and welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe and today, Gabe, we're looking forward to this talk that came from a women's event that Q sponsored some years ago, but really, it's just a great talk that really helps us think well about men, women, and our gendered reality. And I'm excited about this episode today because we're going to hear from Kathy Keller. Many of you have been impacted and influenced deeply by the Keller family. And Tim is the one who many people hear from and, and learn from and consistently every week is teaching and, and he's podcast and sermons. And I know Rebecca often goes for a walk and she's catching up on a Tim Keller sermon and learning from that and telling me like, this is what I heard today. And, and so he's had an impact on our life. We got to live in New York City where we got to spend a lot of time together and he's weighed in on my life a lot. Yeah, Tim has also weighed in a lot at Q with conference speaking and such. We featured him several times here on this show. And since Kathy's talk is only about 15 minutes, we do have time to bring you a segment of a talk by Tim that we haven't featured here before. And it really speaks into what Q does and is all about. The talk is entitled The Both and of the Gospel. Let's listen to just a few moments of it here on Q Ideas. Doctrine of Justification by Faith Alone has come down into the evangelical world as a kind of uh, very familiar, what I'll call the traditional gospel. Justification by Faith Alone is the traditional evangelical gospel. It goes like this. All human beings are under the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ has come and died on the cross, substitutionary sacrifice, and he bore the punishment, the, the wrath that we deserve. So that when you believe in him, even though you in yourself are still a sinner, your guilt, the guilt and shame of your record is imputed to him, and the rights and privileges of his perfect record are imputed to you, and though even though you in yourself are a sinner, you are accepted and loved right now. That's the traditional gospel, period. That's the end. That's the gospel. Now, what's been happening, I think, over the last few years is the people who really guard the doctrine of justification by faith believe that the implications of that is that we're mainly here in the world to do evangelism. Uh, the idea of doing justice, uh, deeds of justice and compassion for the poor, as a major priority of Christians, people in the justification party feel like, no, 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 that's, uh, that's distracting us from the main thing we do. In fact, isn't the doctrine of justification by faith alone really about grace, not about going out and righting wrongs in this world? But on the other hand, Christians that are very intrigued and passionate for justice and for cultural engagement, have started, I think, to kind of walk away from that traditional gospel. 
at the very least, they're not using the terms. They're not talking justification language anymore. Uh, they're not talking about the death of Jesus Christ as uh, bearing the wrath of God. Instead, they'd rather talk about it being uh, the defeat of the powers of greed and violence. And when they talk about the purpose of salvation, they wouldn't talk so much about pardon and individual justification as the purpose of salvation is a new heavens, new earth, a new world of justice. And they don't want to talk about the, uh, the act of becoming a Christian so much as receiving pardon as identifying now with a new community that does justice in the world. And even though actually all the things I just said are not really in any particular way antithetical to the doctrine of justification by faith, there's, there's an increasing bifurcation. People are walking away from each other. They're afraid to, to use the terms if you are into justice or if you're into justification by faith alone, you're, you feel like the justice priorities shouldn't be there. I'm here to say justification and justice are joined at the hip. They are almost a seamless cloth. And justice people who are walking away from those old, that old traditional gospel are walking away from an enormous resource for doing justice. And justification people who don't realize that the two things go together just need to go back to the scripture. Let me give you three fast points. Justification by faith leads to justice. Justice leads to more people getting justified by faith. And there's a reason why those two things go together. Number one, justification leads to, justification by faith leads to justice. Look, go back to the prophets. Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 29, famous verse where it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What kind of people are those? Look in the chapter. It's people who don't care about the poor. Isaiah 58, the beginning of Isaiah 58 God is talking about the fact that on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when your sins are atoned for by grace, the Israelites would fast. It's, it, fasting was a way of showing humility before uh, God's grace salvation. Fasting was a way of showing that you know you're a sinner saved by grace. But God says, here you are, Yom Kippur, you're trying to show that you know you're a sinner saved by grace, and you fast, and yet you, while you fast, you exploit your workers. And then he goes on and says, look, if you believe you're saved by grace, this is the fast I choose. He says, is it not to loose the chains of injustice? Well, what does that mean? He goes right on. He says, it means to share your food with the hungry, provide the homeless foreigner with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him. In other words, Isaiah is saying, if you say you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, but you don't care about the poor, you haven't really encountered God's grace. You're not really right with God. Okay, well, is the New Testament different? Not a bit. Mark chapter 12, 38, and 40. Jesus says, he's looking at the Pharisees, and he says, they, they make lengthy prayers for a show, but they devour widows' houses. And then in Luke eleven thirty-eight, 38, 42, he says about the Pharisees, they're full of greed and wickedness, and they neglect justice and the love of God, and they should give to the poor. What is Jesus doing? He's picking up the same theme all through the Old Testament, which is, if you've really encountered the grace of God, you will care about the poor, the widows, the orphans, the immigrant, and the poor. Nicholas Wolderstar calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. All through the Old Testament, the way you know you're right with God is you care about those people. Then, of course, the, the, uh, the passage that Jesus, uh, the parable or the teaching where Jesus essentially builds on Isaiah 58 is Matthew 25. 
And he says, on the last day, judgment day, there's going to be people out there. They're all going to say they know me. But I can tell you how I'll know the difference on judgment day between the people who say they're saved and the people who really are saved. Some people are going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked or a stranger uh, and, and turned you away? And Jesus is going to say, when you saw the naked and the stranger and when you saw the poor and the thirsty and you didn't care for their needs, you didn't care for my needs. Oh, that was just part of Tim Keller's talk about the both and of the gospel. Now, if you'd like to hear the full talk, it is on the Q Media platform at qideas.org. If you're not a subscriber yet, request a free 30-day trial subscription and hear the full talk and so much more. And Gabe, again, Tim really has weighed in a lot here, not just at Q with the talks like that, but also personally he has really spoken into your life. And, and in crucial moments has been such a critical voice in navigating and discerning, like how to navigate culture. He's done that for all of us. Many people may not know Kathy, though. Kathy, his wife, amazing. She's been not only a faithful wife, but she's also been somebody who theologically has gone deep into all these many issues that her and Tim talk through together. She's not passive in this. They are a couple on mission together. And today you're going to get to hear from her. You're going to get to hear her voice. You're going to get to hear her describe the ways in which she thinks about the gift of gender. And why is that important? Well, there's been a lot of conversations over the last many years about gender and what it means and how do we think about it and stereotypes and gender roles. Well, what we wanted to do is pull this one out of the archive because it takes us back several years ago to 2013. So I want to put you back before this conversation had become a bigger deal in our cultural moment, to have a conversation at an event called Q Women. And for about four years, we had this event. We would bring together women leaders to hear about all of the conversations that women were having, needed to be having, and what it looked like to look at the future for the church as it related to women. And we invited Kathy to talk about the gift of gender. I think you're going to appreciate hearing her perspective. So let's listen in now. have escaped you. Women are hot copy right now. Um, there's talk show interviews, there's articles, there's books, there's conferences. And most of those articles and books and things are circling around the question of having it all. Can we? Do we want to? The ever popular how to. But the title of today's event is Women and Calling, and I want to suggest that before we can move on to answers in any other level, we need to see that being a woman is our most radical calling. And by radical, I'm using that word the way it was, intention, was originally used as meaning root or foundation. Stay with me for a few minutes while I tease this out. But in order to have a calling, there must be a caller. And we need to have someone outside of ourselves to give that call. We can't call ourselves. A person has to be capable of communicating clearly and competently. Further, this person has to be someone with some authority that I recognize as legitimate on my life or else I will just ignore the call. Ancient philosophers recognized an organizing principle in the universe. They named it the logos. And in order to have a meaningful life, you had to discover what that logos was and live in harmony with it. As Christians, we identify this caller as the triune God, the one who keeps every atom spinning in billions and billions of galaxies while simultaneously attending to 
the physically fragile and heart-wrecked needs of his creatures. This God self-identifies as the word and is more than competent to communicate using words. He's the logos of the universe, embodied as Jesus and made personal. As the creator and author of all life, he has authority over my life. You can think of it, if you're in my business, as the IP rights over my life. His call isn't an option that I might consider, but a demand that I live consistently with my design. Who could possibly know better what I'm called to than the one who knit me together, gifted me, gendered me, and then called me into the world to glorify himself? In Ephesians 2.10, we're told, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This flies in the face of everything we are being told today. From public service announcements on buses, have any of you seen these? The ones, okay, well, I ride a lot of public transportation. To pretty much anything that's on the Lifetime channel or the Hallmark channel, to TED Talks and conferences, we are told to dream, to follow our feelings, to listen to our hearts. Imagination, dreams, Feelings are all good things, but we can't rely on any of them as the ultimate basis for our life's mission. Our inner impulses must yield to the authority of the caller. This is of immeasurable comfort to me when my feelings contradict each other, as they so often do. I have been looking at everybody during the day, and I figure in, except for maybe a couple exceptions, I probably have lived twice as many decades as most of you, which has given me more than twice as many opportunities to follow my feelings into a train wreck. (laughs) Sadly, wishing doesn't make it so. And when reality doesn't bend to match our dearest heart's desire, we can become disappointed, disillusioned, and ultimately embittered with life. And there are so many of us today who are in exactly that position. We live lives with no context, no narrative, no goals beyond just satiating our most current desire. Added to our own confusion is a confusion of voices out there telling us everything that a woman must think, must wear, must achieve, must be, just must, all the musts. I want to suggest that the call, which has been addressed to us by our God, although it has many facets, many of which have been discussed today, has one elemental, basic, discernible core, and that is we are called to be a reflection of the image of God in our gendered humanity. Let me read the words of those Bible verses often referred to as the creation mandate. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Somebody pointed out to me yesterday, this is a total tangent, that that's the first command God addressed to people, and you may as well translate it as have a lot of sex and make a lot of babies. (laughs) Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. To bear the image of God is a call given jointly to men and women. It is a call to be human. It assumes we'll be in relationship with the one in whose image we were made, although this is now only possible through the salvation purchased with the life and death of God himself in Jesus Christ. Further, it's a call to care for creation. Subduing and ruling the earth is a call to be sub-creators, working alongside our creator to bring out all the potentialities in art, in music, in architecture, in agriculture. I mean, you name it, everything. But we're now living in a broken world, aren't we? I will be the first to testify to the abuses that women have suffered at the hands of Bible-quoting people using verses just like the ones that I read. In fact, chief among them, the ones that I've read. And I want to be among the voices, the loud voices, insisting that malicious twisting, contextless exegesis, willful eisegesis, which is reading your meaning into the text rather than getting God's meaning out, or just clueless subcultural misinterpretation, whatever, cannot be permitted by anyone. Those who have gifts of teaching have got to show the church a better way, like our sister Priscilla in the book of Acts. However, I'm afraid that we're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's an image taken from being in such haste to get rid of the crap that we toss the child as well. I fear that we may be in danger of losing our birthright for a mess of pottage, which is an image taken from the story of Esau, who in order to satisfy his momentary hunger forfeited his father's blessing. Because there have been abuses that flow from the acceptance of God-ordained gender roles, does that mean there are no legitimate uses? When God created humanity, he did not make a sexless being first and then only secondly paced on the gender. To be human, we must be gendered humans. And with that come gifts and responsibilities that each gender must shoulder if we are to truly reflect the accurate image of God. These gifts and responsibilities are collectively known as gender roles. Many women recoil, the lights are in my eyes, or I would see some of you doing it right now, with fear and anger because they know how those words have been used to oppress. Wouldn't it just be safer to discard the whole idea? But go back to those verses that I read in Genesis and consider the charge gave to humankind to rule over all the other animals, be fruitful and increase, to fill the earth and subdue it. We all know how those verses have been twisted and misused as an excuse for raping the environment in a quest for its riches, hunting animals to extinction for no better reason than just vanity, and endangering the future of our planet with every kind of pollution. This is grievous, it's despicable, but it is not a reason to abdicate from our assignment to care for our planet because people have misused those verses. Should we abandon our care for creation? I trust that everyone out there recognizes the necessity of doing all in your power to care for, nurture, and repair creation as viceroys and sub-creators answerable to and representative of our creator God. That being the case, then why can't we also accept 
that in spite of the misuse and abuse of divinely ordained gender roles, they are still gifts from God. To spurn his gift is not only ingratitude of the highest magnitude, it's also colossal arrogance. I know what's in the box and I know I don't want it is not a sentence you want to hear after you have carefully and thoughtfully chosen an expensive gift for a loved one. You're not even going to open it, try it on, see if maybe it fits and it suits you. (sighs) Though different as to gender role assignments, men and women are ontologically, and that just means as to essence, ontologically equal. To deny that ontological equality can exist alongside differing roles is to deny the mystery of the threefold persons of the triune God. For the theologically inclined among you, this is not the heresy of Arianism or eternal subordination. The persons in the Trinity are all eternally equal. But the Father sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, not the other way around. There are distinct roles in that equality. To deny the different gifts that men and women bring to relationships, the workplace, and the church is to reject the calling that God gave us when he made us male and female instead of genderless. We don't need more maleness in the world, nor do we need a wan, anemic, genderless world. We need to recover how to be women and how to use our gifts to draw out and safeguard the potential that's in creation. To aspire to a unisex or a gender-neutral life in the body of Christ as it exists in the church and the home would be a tragic mistake. We would be guilty of defacing the image of God as it can only be fully reflected in the completion that each gender brings to the other. This type of talk may sound confining, as if acknowledging my calling to be a woman means putting on a straitjacket and adopting someone else's idea of what it means to be feminine. Since even the devil is known to quote scripture, it is not surprising that sinful human beings have learned to do the same, thus prescribing detailed lists of do's and don'ts for proper biblical masculine and feminine behavior. Yes, his word gives structure to his call. But beyond broad outlines, there is great freedom to fill in the details as will be appropriate in your culture and in your life. We are not free to jettison those things that God has made clear because freedom lies in living inside our design, the design that enables enables us to fulfill our calling to be women. But too often would-be teachers have ignored that saying of John Calvin's, which I'm sure everyone knows, where God has shut his holy mouth, I will not venture to open mine. And instead they have forged straight ahead and created this mashup of God's word and subcultural expectations with a dollop of personal preference thrown in. This occurs on both the liberal and the conservative ends of the spectrum, I might add. Of the women, a couple of women who I'm friends with that I asked to look over this talk when I was writing a first draft, several had the same complaint. What are the minimum points of obedience for answering God's call for me to be a gendered person in my culture? You don't spell out what it means for me to be a woman in my time and my place. No, I don't. And I won't. 
although if I had more than 18 minutes, I could give you some case studies maybe. But we'd end up debating the details to no purpose. I want to leave you with a desire to accept God's calling to be a woman and not a faux man. I want you to be hungry to know the deep fulfillment located in acknowledging your call to be the female half of a gendered humanity. There is vast complexity and hard thinking and prayer that has to go into figuring out how this works in a marriage, in a single life, in the home and the church and the workplace. Learning the dance of complementary roles does not come naturally to either men or women now that we're fallen. But even faltering and stumbling, if we persist, we will find ourselves entering the joy of our creator and the dance within the Trinity. The intention to try counts for far more than the assurance of success. We have been called by a loving, holy, omnipotent caller who is my creator, redeemer, and Lord. Answer the call. It's for you. Well, again, this is Q Ideas for this Mother's Day weekend and a great talk there from Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller, talking about what it means to be called to be a woman. It's such a great talk. And maybe as you were listening, you were thinking of the larger conversations of our day where the struggle to understand our God-created gendered nature has exploded in so many directions with so much confusion. How do we respond well to the cultural confusions of our day? There are so many. Well, that's what Q tries to facilitate with Q events like the recent Culture Summit and, of course, the Q Media platform. Again, you can learn more about Q Media and subscribe at qideas.org. If you're not sure, well, remember, you can request a 30-day trial subscription just to check it out. Well, thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lines for this week. I'm Paul Perot. We hope you listen again next time. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.